HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. For more information, visit RothCheese.com. I'm HRN's Communications Director, Kat Johnson, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and Three, our weekly food news roundup. We decided it's high time we do an episode about Mary Jane. Marijuana, things are happening. That's right. This episode is about pot. We're exploring the rhetoric surrounding legalization in New York's recent gubernatorial primaries. And a cheesemonger turned cannabis consultant shares the tricks of the trade. Great. So do you want to conquer the world? Do you want to have hazy eyes? Do you want to, you know, just relax all day and be floaty? And we find out how one exemplary South Carolina farmer is trying his hand at a new crop. Every plant that comes up from seed is different. And so it's... It's learning how the plant grows, how it responds, and then familiarizing myself and my senses with this plant. Plus, Hannah Forden and I taste test the hottest new cocktail ingredient, CBD. So subscribe to Meet and 3 wherever you listen to podcasts and be the first to know when the newest episode of Meet and 3 drops. Welcome to the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is sommelier Matthew Conway. We'll talk to Matthew about wine, psalms, millennials, and a lot more. We'll taste the Syrah from the Northern Rhone for our weekly wine sip. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. All right, Matthew Conway got his start at his mom's restaurant in Northern California before moving to New York around 2003. He took a job with Chef Grey Coons at Cafe Grey, eventually leaving to hook up with Mark Forgione in 2007-2008 at Mark's 
at Mark's restaurant. Eponominous. Eponominously <laughs> named restaurant. Uh, over 10 years later, he's now the general manager and beverage director of restaurant Mark Forgione in Tribeca. Matthew is a coffee sommelier. He's a, a star chef's rising star. He's a Zagat 30 under 30. He has certifications from the ASA for viticulture, vinification, blind tasting. And he also completed the Taliban training program in Paris. Welcome to the show, Matthew. Thank you for having me on, Sam. Um, let's give the audience a little context. I, I talked a little about where you came from, but you know, I want a little more detail. Don't take up too much time, but give me a little background on your journey in life and wine to where you are today, which is, you know, in New York as a Psalm at a high profile restaurant downtown. Well, coming from California, uh, I was always surrounded by food, wine, the whole culture of in enjoying uh, life, drinking and eating. Uh, but it wasn't until I moved to Boston after graduating high school that I, I kind of got bit by the wine bug, which was uh, because of my, my sister, actually. That's when I moved to San Diego. And that's when I worked at a restaurant where wine was really a big focus, which led me to Northern California, uh, where I'm originally from, to then come to New York to chase the goal of becoming a sommelier. What was the Boston thing? School or just... I just wanted to, leave the, there? wanted to leave the West Coast and experience uh, something new. And my sister graduated college the same time I graduated high school. So we packed up and shipped across but the country. But you said there was sort of a wine moment there. I mean, what, what, or, or she, realization. What was going on? She worked for a <clears throat> struggling fine dining restaurant. And at the end <laughs> of the night, uh, the manager would tip her in a wine bottle out of the cellar if she didn't make enough money. Wow. So, so you she got to share that with her. So she'd bring that home, and we'd drink some wines, which now I kind of laugh at what I right. thought was, you know, wild and expensive. Right. Uh, but it was still, that's where I was like, wow, this, this really clicks. All right, so Boston to San Diego, while you in San Diego, and then get me out of there, and what next? I worked at a place below George's on the Cove, which is a very famous restaurant in La Jolla. It was called Monzu on Prospect, and the, the owner was just wildly brilliant in the kitchen. And that's where I started to like touch three, four hundred dollar bottles of wine as a server, and, and kind of really like, wow, this can work. There's a life in restaurants where there's like this glamour of, you know, eating and drinking at the finest levels, people with diamonds, and it was it was quite luxurious, I guess is the best way to put it. So that got you juiced and well, hopped up. That's when I was like, I can make a career in the restaurant business. Right. That's not in the back of the house. It's not ownership, but it's something that I absolutely love to do and something that has a little bit more uh, fun involved. Right. Is that restaurant still there? It's not. It was short-lived. Short oh, it was short-lived. Sounds like a good place. All right, so then what happens? You move, you work your way east? I go back to Northern California, work for my mom, opening her restaurant uh, in my hometown. Did that? Which was where? It was in Folsom, California, okay. where the prison is. Right. Uh, that's where I was raised, and that whole time I was studying wine, reading wine books, you know, Kevin Zraeli's Windows on the World, you know, the Wine Bible, those types of things, and all I had access to was Cabernet, Pinot Noir, and I wanted to taste Barolo and Saint Julien and, you know, wines that I was reading about, but I didn't really have access to. And that's Is that because of geography? Correct. Just generally the wines and restaurants and stores uh, there? Are local. Try to find a bottle of yeah. Cote Roti in Burgundy, and yeah. it's a little bit difficult. Yeah. Try to find a bottle of European wine in right. the middle of wine country in California is tough. That drove you crazy? 
it drove me to New York. Okay. Knowing that yeah. I wanted to become a sommelier, I came here for a purpose, and that was 15 years ago. All right. So 15 years ago, you get here, and what are the first things you do, and how does that get you to where you are? Well, I signed up at the ASA before I came out here. My Explain sister, quickly what the ASA is. It's The American Sommelier Association is a wine school that is or was run by Andrew Bell. Right. Um, I think he's still around. I believe he is. Yeah. I, I'm not quite sure about the, the program anymore. Right. But uh, there wasn't many... Uh, programs that would teach you and test you. It was just learn on your own and test like the MS program. And I wanted to take classes. So I signed up before I got here. My sister was already living here. So I, I shacked up with her for a little while, got my first job at uh, Aqua Grill, waiting tables, which then led me to Pache waiting tables, um, which is a Jimmy Bradley restaurant where Mr. Chow's is in Tribeca, so right down the street where I am now, and that's when I kind of was finishing school, and I got offered the job at Cafe Gray working for Gray Kuntz, and I was 22 years old. That was Midtown, right? Time Warner Center? Third it wasn't the time? Oh, it was. Third floor of the Time Warner Center. Killer restaurants on that floor. It was uh, a time where I was a little bit young, dumb, and naive and didn't realize what I'd stepped into or how lucky You're I was. You're all of that but old now, but keep going. I am all of no, that no, but no, old I'm now. I'm joking. Go ahead. Uh, so, yeah, I just got lucky enough to work for um, Gray at a time where I was very young. And, and the world of wine as a from a sommelier or beverage director's perspective then was much much different than it is now there was right. some i want to talk a little later on about that. so much uh so many less sommeliers or beverage directors or, or personalities in the industry both in new york and nationally much different goals and ideals about what wine is what a beverage program should look like what a wine team looks like on the floor it was just different waters and again i was kind of in the right place at the right time but also worked very 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 hard at that time to trying to make a name for myself right so i think great coons had uh les benas in the saint regis he did that closed down and he opened a more casual place correct pretty good spot to uh well great coons was a four-star new york times chef right he was the first inductee to the beard right. who's who of food and uh food he, and wine he kind of took new york by storm so you meet Towards the end of that tenure, you meet Mark Forgione? Correct. How? I mean, intro, friends? Uh, Craigslist. What do you mean? You were looking for furniture and he showed up? He was, uh, well, I I'd left Gr Cafe Gray because they were closing. Right. And uh, it was, he had two restaurants that I was overseeing, Cafe Gray and Gray's in the Rockefeller uh, right. townhouse. Both of those were at their end and I and I knew that so I took some time off to spend with my family and look for another job and I was just utilizing all the opportunities you know word of mouth friends and I ran across a ad on Craigslist as I was about to take another job for a new restaurant called Forge right. a restaurant by Mark Forgione I reached out to my mentor um, Richard Holoku, who had been around forever and said, do you know who Mark Forgione is? And he said, no, I don't, but I would imagine it's either Larry's brother or uncle or son. Right. And I'm like, who's Larry? Right. New York guy. He's like, uh, an American place. Just shut up and go take the interview and see what <laughs> happens. And I met Mark that first day when I walked in for the interview, which is in the restaurant we're in now. He was sitting in a corner table, which it hadn't been demolished from the previous restaurant. It was no heaters. It was cold. He was wearing fingerless gloves, and he had his mohawk and his leather he studded had it leather jacket. Oh, he did. Okay. Studded leather jacket. I sat down. I said, Chef, how are you? He said, Good. How are you, kid? 
gosh, we're about the same age. Why is he calling me kid? <laughs> and he said, uh, I, I can ask you a bunch of questions, but I just want to ask you one question. What do you want to do in life? And? I what, said, are, are you talking you about... Were you prepared to roll off what you thought was the right answer? I wasn't prepared for that question. For first question out of his mouth, I wasn't sure whether he was talking about what do I want to do in wine? What do I want to do right. in restaurants? What do I want to do with my question. body? <laughs> I don't remember what I said exactly, but it was good enough to get the job. Okay. So right then and there, he pretty much indicated that... Uh... Pretty. I mean, I did another interview with our managing partner and toured the facility and obviously had to talk uh, numbers and things like that. Right. But uh, yeah, pretty much Mark So you were there name. when the Forge was in the process of becoming Restaurant Mark Forgione, right? Yes, I was. They signed a handshake agreement on a lease January, and I interviewed in February. Took the job officially the f second week of March, and we opened in June. Mar June of what year? Again? Two thousand and eight. Two thousand and eight, and you start there as GM wine director. Okay. Nothing's changed in that capacity. <laughs> well, in well, years. we'll talk about that. All right, so that that brings us to current. So. You know, you're one of the guys, I talk to a lot of wine people, I talk to a lot of sommeliers, a lot of them are your friends, um, and the nice thing is they're a great bunch of people, and some people have been at places for some pretty good tenure, um, but I mean, you've been there, I don't know, what, 10, 12 years? I mean, how do you stay interested in the restaurant business, still interested and motivated at that singular location you know and the whole wine thing i mean still exciting what happens well the as it pertains to the restaurant itself we struggled mightily out of the gate we opened in 08 right before the financial crash oh, and the depression there were days where we might not open um we made it through those times and then that's when I got the time to go to Taivant in Paris and work for three months under one of the best wine cellars in the world um, sure. with Mark's blessing. And that's when he won Next Iron Chef. And then I came back and we got a Michelin star. And we kind of went through our teenage years where we were learning how to be busy and learning how to put out a great product, both service, wine, food, cocktails, and be busy. And then we kind of weathered that storm and it's like, all right, how do we become... Uh, busy with less covers or sorry how do we become better with less covers how do we increase the level of service and food and whatever uh, but do 30% less covers so we're focusing more on quality than quantity so there was a big learning curve so over the 10 years it's not till recently that we've really f I've felt that we were established or where we want to be which I tell people who are opening restaurants in, in New York City or anywhere all the time it really took me eight years to feel like we Patience. were where we wanted to be but it was stimulating all along and now thankfully I have a really great team um, behind me uh, that's been there for a long time my bar team's been there a long time my number two Mikey Noah has been there a long time uh, my third manager has been here for eight years so I have a team of people that really focus and do a lot of the day-to-day -day operations which allows but that's me relatively new in the last three four years less. than seven years ago yeah, right correct. I did so everything that's another in the challenge right um, so now it gives me a time to focus a lot more on wine and what I got into this for was something that I'll say today and I'll say in 10 years and I'll say until I die, which is, 
you never know everything. You don't even know 10% of what you think you want to know. I know. So as much as I have things that I love and I gravitate towards, every day is a challenge. Regions are changing. People are different. You know, trends are changing. Things are always exciting in the wine business as long as you still have the passion to do it and be a part of it. I agree. I mean, there's stuff going on all the time. Um, So do you have aspirations beyond what you're doing now i mean would you say i mean well everybody has guys, aspirations yeah but i i mean you <laughs> and i know guys that have and own wine labels we have a friend who owns a wine store you know a well curated store um do you think about that now you don't have to i mean do you want to own your own restaurant you, i take a lot of pride in having been in the same restaurant working with the same that's partner a big deal a in this time. business I think it's a very big deal. I also take a lot of pride in the fact that I've been working the floor for 15 years consecutively. Um, You know, I think of Roger DeGorn. I I don't want to do that that long, but there's something to be said about that type of commitment rather than moving. If you feel good about it, you do it. And rather than moving into the corporate side of things or getting off the floor or managing large teams or whatever, that, that experience is invaluable to me. And I'm right now I'm writing a book about the industry I can't so, talk too much about it today, but I'm getting to the point have to, where I, I won't really, press really... you. But when I talk about aspirations, you know, writing and articulating what you feel is, you know, a current one right now. Yeah, well, I mean, what I really want to do is is take a lot of my experiences and share them with the people that don't know the best way. I had a lot of mentors, and you know, there was a big argument or debate you know, years ago about whether you need to be an MS or not. And in my opinion, it's all about mentorship, whether that person has a pin on their lapel or whether they're, you know, uh, somebody who's been around for 15 years before you to teach you the small like ropes. Like Raj Parr wouldn't be a bad teacher. Yeah, but he also wouldn't be who he is without Larry Stone. It, right, but he's also not an MS. But so, he needed Larry to to your point to learn right. his craft, and now he's able to teach that craft. I was more to the on the certifications him. and all that. You're on. The, I, I agree a hundred percent with that. And that's, so that's something that you know most people, a lot of people, come to me and say whether they're in the business or whether I'm at a wedding, and they say, "How do I be able to do what you do?" And some of them are being a little bit more, you know, joking about right. how do I get to drink for a living, and some of them are, you know, young psalms that are like, "How do I do what you do?" And it's a very tough question to answer. So right. I'd really like to. Uh, pass that along along in many ways. One of them is still working in the restaurant. I get to mentor young people. Erin, my sommelier at the restaurant, is you know going on her probably third year as the sommelier now, and she's learned and grown so much. And I'm going to send her off to be a beverage director of a program that she's proud of and do something that she wants to do. And that nice. mentoring aspect for me is something that, whether it's via a book or day-to-day on the floor, is something that I... Both? Or both. I'm very proud of and when, work hard for. When do you hope ballpark you know to have the book finished and maybe i'm just the reason why i don't want to talk about too much i'm just tying up the loose ends with um the agreements with my writer who who i'm literally as we speak are we talking like oh 19 or next year the year after well if don't even say if you don't want to it would at this point if everything goes well it'll probably be late next year early 2020 so you'll keep me uh You'll have to invite me that. back on the show to talk uh, well, about it. Well, I, I do that. You know, uh, John Bonet has been on for a couple of books already. Raj Parr's coming back. He's got a big book coming. You he know, does. he's been on he before. So certainly uh, the invitation is there. Um, you and I were emailing back and forth, and we were kind of busting each other's balls about millennials and baby boomers and all of that. And you said to me, Hey, don't forget, I'm sort of a millennial. And I'm like, yeah, Okay. 
So, to that point, do you consider yourself a next generation sommelier or a sommelier or a, because you're still a young hip dude downtown, you know, Forgione, cool guy. Somewhere right now, my girlfriend's laughing that you just called me hip on the air. You're not a hip guy. <laughs> hey, maybe you'll get laid tonight. <laughs> maybe. maybe. <laughs> what do you think? I mean, do you feel that you are part of... You know, Kevin's Rayleigh was on about a year ago. He said, I worked in the business when there were five Psalms in New York. He goes, there's five at one restaurant now. Yeah. And you know that. And that's sort of part of the new thing. But do you feel you're part of that? Or are you just somewhere in the middle? I think for me, I'm 35. I started at 22. You do the math. I said 15 years. I moved here 15 years ago. I've been working the floor in New York for 15, 13 as a sommelier. In many regards, I'm an, I'm an OG in this city as far right. as working the floor, but in the scope of life at 35, That's I'm young. That's my point. So, so where do you put that? Again, I don't really think about that type of stuff very often. Again, I'm right. You're just, aware of everything. I just try to put my head down and work hard and enjoy what I do every single day. Life is short. I love living. I love tasting great wine. I love tasting great food. I love just living and breathing and just trying to take it all in. And I let everybody else p p ponder the rest. New York is a good place to have that as a canvas. One thousand percent. You know everything you mentioned. People off the charts. Food, restaurants, diversity off the chart, wines, availability, accessibility, you know, all of that stuff. So it's a fun thing. And if you're passionate about it, which comes across, then in every waking moment, you want to do this. And it's very central to travel. And part of my passion is traveling. So it's whether you're going, you know, west to California or east to Europe, you're pretty centrally located to hop on a plane and be where you want to be. And traveling and getting out of New York City is also a big part of my, my lust for life. Right. So before we get to wine areas and regions and passions and favorites of yours, there's three things that reoccur on this show that are sort of important to guess the market in the show. And basically, they're natural wines, social media, and millennials have had sort of a huge effect. So... We, you and I could do a whole show on natural wines, but give me your take, your personal feeling, how you um, view it and use it in the restaurant. You know, are you a user? I mean, where you, you might at? be very disappointed in my answer. No, 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 no. I don't believe in natural wine. But you know the whole umbrella. I'm not, you know, organic, biodynamic. Correct. Natural. I don't even like to use the word. Right. Or the phrase. Either do I, but I don't know how to throw it out. But the reality is right now in the past two years, I haven't had one salesperson come to me and put something in front of me that wasn't quote unquote organic or natural. How do we define this? What does it mean? Are you allowed to use sulfur? Are you not allowed to use sulfur? Is it, you know, is the, you know, the off characteristics that people associate with natural wine, is that part of every wine, like mousiness and all this other stuff? And there's this whole real big debate about whether you're somebody who wants it or not, or whether you chase it or not. My whole answer to all of that is, if the wine is good, it's good. I don't believe that any fuss about natural wines can't age. That's bullshit, right? right. So at the end of the day, if it's a well-made wine with soul, then it's going to do fine out of the gate, and it's going to last a long time. And for me, I look for wines with soul. A lot of times I find that wines that are more responsibly farmed and 
have a minimal, you know, intervention in the wine cellar, those tend to show more soul. So when I'm blind tasting or doing a tasting of, you know, producers with a distributor, I find oftentimes that I lean towards organic or biodynamic, not wines that they're telling me, but that I know are. More the story. Well, no, that, in the glass, there's more texture, there's more life, there's well, more... Right, but the guy is a low-intervention farmer, a low-intervention winemaker, and tries often, to do sustainability and all. You know, there's a story, and the wines are good. And oftentimes, I don't know that ahead of time, but when right. I go through, and you know, my, my psalm team will attest to this for me, oftentimes I'm like, I don't know why, I just like that one. And then when I, we read the story, we don't take the salesperson's you know, word out of their mouth. We go look up the facts, and we find out that the wines are, you know, because of so-and-so, you know, they've been farmed this way way before organic farming was cool and whatever. And you can feel that soul in the wines, but I also feel that soul in wines that have more conventional farming in some cases. Right. I'm not an advocate of either way or what's right or wrong, but I can tell you, when I talk about wines that I love, I talk about wines that have a story that have passion behind them. And in the end, I feel like you can feel that soul in the glass. And that sounds cheesy. It doesn't sound cheesy I, because you're around a lot of people on every side of that argument. You're around a lot of wines because that's what you do and you give a crap. And that's, that's the way um, you look at things and it's pretty well defined. And I love my people that are on all sides of the battle. I just, I don't feel that wine is serious enough to pick a side of the battle and, you know, just fight for this or that. And everything's not so black and white. And this is coming from the most black and white person on planet earth when it comes to everything else. But when it comes to alcoholic grape juice, I mean, come on, either it's really good or it's really not. And you can be the decider of whether that's, you know, great mediocre or terrible and everybody's litmus test for that is a little bit different mine is obviously different than yours and different than somebody that just walked in off the street but at the end of the day either you like what's in the glass or you don't i agree and we'll leave it at that all right let's talk about social media tell me how you see how it's changed influence wine and also tell me how you use it good for you important to you because this is this is a question that was virtually non-existent five, seven years ago and properly used or not can have an effect. It's so much easier for trends to move much quicker, which is a double-edged sword. It could be very, very good in some capacities and can be very, very negative in some capacities. Unfortunately, there's situations where, uh, you know, certain percentage of the population will gravitate to something because certain people start posting and liking something. And sometimes that's influence of marketing, right? Of course. And there's, there's ways where a a good example is when I was at cafe gray, there was a Chablis event at the, in the private dining room and they were begging me uh, to pour Laurent tribute by the glass. They were willing to give me deep discount pricing because it was before Spitzer and the SLA <laughs> crisis, which knows you, makes you know I'm old school. And they were willing to just bottom deal on $14 a glass for Premier Cru Laurent Tribute because they couldn't sell the stuff in New York. Right. And they, you know, a few people, influential people, you mentioned Raj earlier, Patrick Capiello, people who have large followings. They get behind a brand and it becomes uh, very, very widely consumed in a very short period of time, which... Or behind an existing brand or launch a brand. Correct. And I think that you I could list all types of things, but that's not really what we're here for today. I think it has good and bad things. I use it personally. Just give me one of the bads that just kind of a... I think the kind of lemming copycat mentality of... 
of wanting to drink something not because of anything else except for that somebody else that you admire is drinking it can have negative things. Right. I think well, the other negative side of it is, you know, there might be people out there just like in, you know, school somewhere who see something going on that they're not a part of and then it creates jealousy or envy right. or negative feelings That's towards people. That's a huge people. aspect in general. Of course it is. Yeah. And I think that it's something that can't be ignored in the wine world. You see a party going on that you're not involved with. FOMO. I FOMO. And I would never... Look at you. You're calling me the millennial here. You got all the the fun little millennial words. I got a cheat sheet somewhere. So again, for me, I think that's negative because then I think it creates resentment from other people, which causes negative energy between relationships and things. I don't, I don't waste time really thinking about all that. I'm just answering your question. Right. At the end of the day, I use... How do you use it to your what you think is your benefit? Specifically Instagram. I just try to tell the story of what I'm doing, where I'm traveling, what I'm drinking... You know, all the wines that I post are not are not wildly expensive. Not all of the wines I post are. Some of them are, but many of them are not. A lot of them are Syrah because that's what I do and right. what, what I love. But if people know you, they know what you're around, and it's a sincere snapshot. Of and I try what to sh- represent what I'm doing very well, but it's not for any purpose. I'm not trying to get followers. I'm not trying to do anything else. But the people who do follow me have a good idea who I am, what right. I'm doing, and what I do. I try to be very genuine with it, and I think that anybody that follows me knows that. Uh, it, it's all about just really trying to be like a genuine reflection of who I am today. I, uh, I've been following you for a while, even before, you know, I thought about having you on the show and I think fairly that comes across and that's not necessarily everyone's intention. It's more of creating, you know, FOMO for the other guy or, you know, my pee-pee's bigger than yours because I'm at a uh, Romani Conti, you know, tasting or whatever. There's a lot of that, which I try to avoid, but there's also just, like, things that people do that just aren't as fun-minded as other people, and I just try to have fun. Right. All right, so before we take a break, I want to ask you about how you think millennials are affecting the restaurant and wine market. Um, then we're going to take a break. I want to talk to you about wines, Rhone wines. I'm going to subject you to my wine list answer a bunch of questions and then we're going to taste um this terrific uh Rhone wine that you brought in so millennials hate to sort of you know separate them or whatever but big influence in the market now um fine dining place like yours with a well thought out wine list i mean are millennials good customers are they uh again i'm not sure if there's a a, a real defined idea of millennial specifically there's varying date of births and age ranges most would put me at the high cusp of it i'm gonna i'm gonna throw out to you 26 to 32 okay working money you know different karma i see a lot of them every week I love them. I think that they're different drinkers than you and your parents were. I think they're more adventurous. I think that even though they don't have as much money, they're more willing to come back on a regular basis. They build a, they're much more comfortable building a one-on-one relationship with me and asking me for advice about what wine their sister should order for their wedding or what they should become their mini mentor. And in many ways it's, 
it can be a little bit tough sometimes to have 30 people that want your attention about something, but it's a blessing. It's a blessing to have that many people that are interested in wine because at the end of the day, I told you, I love life. I love having fun. Having 50 people that want to be a part of this ride is... You miss it when it's not there. It's so incredible that I I love dealing with them um, and their requests and they're beautiful people. They're, uh, again, because they're young, they've got that vivacious energy of life. Again, they usually love Mark and being involved in the whole situation. Many of them just are happy sitting at the bar or a communal table rather than needing a serious table. So those are some of the habits. And their bar is easier, more casual, communal is casual, maybe not looking to drop as much money. Their price point is lower. I'm not going to get a bottle of shove on them, but I don't need to if they come back three times a month. Right. Um, or even if I just see them once every three months, I'm still, it's a big part of our business. And again, Mark always wants to be cutting edge and, and evolving and youthful. And I think having their presence helps us achieve that. All right. We're going to take a break. We're talking to Matthew Conway. Matthew is the general manager and beverage director at restaurant Mark Forgione in New York City. When we come back, we're going to talk about some specific wines that uh, are favorites to Mark's. I'm going to ask him about a few other things. And then uh, wine list and wine sip. So you're listening to The Grape Nation. We'll be right back. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. Roth is in its 25th year of making specialty cheese in the rolling hills of southern Wisconsin. With strong Swiss heritage, Roth is best known for its award-winning Alpine-style cheeses under the name Grand Cru. Fresh Wisconsin milk combined with expertise in affinage is how Roth creates high-quality, great-tasting cheese year after year. In 2016, hard work paid off when out of over 2,000 contenders, Roth Grand Cru Surchois was named World Champion at the World Cheese Championship. For more information, visit RothCheese.com. All right, we're back. We're back with my guest, Matthew Conway from restaurant Mark Forgione. Right, Matthew has a, a deep passion with certain wines, and I want to talk to him about that, and then I'll get his take on some other stuff. Um, I know you're a big lover of Northern Rhone wines. Um, we're having Dustin Wilson and Thomas Pastajak on in a few weeks to promote Rebulda Rhone, which is really, if you're a Northern Rhone wine lover, the place to be. Um, tell me about some of your favorites in the Northern Rhone, Talk quickly about what the Northern Rhone is and start with, you know, reasonable priced accessible stuff. And, you know, let's get to the baller stuff that's there that everybody would love to, you know, drink. Well, first off, Dustin and Thomas are doing a great thing by a highlighting the Northern Rhone and the beautiful producers of that region. But they're also doing it for charity. Right. No kid hungry. So if you have the opportunity to participate in any of the events that week, I'll be there for all of them. I work very closely with them on the event. They're brilliant guys that are doing great things. And if you have any ability to do that, I highly recommend uh, getting involved, even if it's just the grand tasting, because there's an opportunity to taste a bunch of wines from right. a bunch of great people. I'm really excited for the second year. And when they come on, you know, we'll be, be able to dive into it even more. Don't miss that episode. But No Kid Hungry and 100% of the proceeds. It's one of the reasons why, you know, I get behind them. All right, so Northern Rhone Wines. 
France, the Rhone region, the northern part. Just give me a quick, quick, quick primer on the northern Rhone. I think it's a region that's a little bit isolated from the commercial access of many other regions like Bordeaux or the south of France. So it kind of uh, isolated them. Many of the producers are former apricot growers or, or things like that, including um, Vincent Perry, which we're about to drink. He still farms apricots. So it's a very, uh, it's different. It's not, it doesn't have the glitz and glamour of Burgundy or the money flowing Napa. in. Or you Napa. Know, any of those. Right? I'm speaking France, but yes, anywhere, yeah. any of that. I that think that the, the area is beautiful. The people are humble. The food is simple yet delicious, and the wines complement all of that. But it's a region that really started to rebound after World War II, and they started to, you know, re-plant um, vineyards that had been um, left vacant for for a long period of time. And some of those producers uh, that champion that movement, like a Ghost Clap, right. who just uh, passed away, he. And some of the, you know, other elder statesmen of the region really put it back on the map and, and identified it as one of the world-class regions for any grape anywhere. I just happen to have a personal affinity for not only the people, the land, the, you know, the terroir or the, the ge- ge- geography of the region, but also just Syrah speaks to my soul. So tell or remind people, the predominant grape in northern Rhone is Syrah. It's always 100% Syrah when it's red in the north. Um, The real big thing to remember is there's different clones of Syrah in the northern Rhone, and when you read up on it, there's, just like any other variety of wine or grape, there's a lot of, um, I wanted to say varietal, but it's variety. That's a shout for Raj Vaeda there. It's a it's a variety of grape that has clones that are a little bit more prolific and tend to lead to thinner water, more watery wines. And then right. there's, you know, the old school clones like uh, Serene that go back and that have a much different impact on what's in the bottle. Uh, but yes, it's also raw. And there's what about six, seven significant regions: Saint Joseph, Cornas. Cote Roti, Hermitage, Crow's Hermitage, and a touch from Saint Perry. And climates, soils vary, plus what you just discussed. I mean, it's a a pretty uh, moderate climate um, all year long. It does get cold in the winters, but short of snow, and it does get hot in the summers, but short of the south of France, blistering hot. But in general, the the general theme is granite. Different types of granite, right. different composition from, you know, you know, more evolved or loose granite, which has different names, which I don't want to get into because I'm not a geologist. And that's not what I love about wine. I love what's in the glass, but it is a granite slab that the Syrah really, really, really thrives on. Vincent Paris, the wine that you brought in, actually has two wines with the name granite, granite yeah. right? Granite 30, granite 60, Correct. I think. All right, so tell me, tell me if you wanted to jump into the region with value in mind. Tell me some wines, regions, types in the Northern Rhone. You know, what, what should we be drinking? I think there's a lot of, um, first of all, it's not the cheapest region to drink. So no. 
I'm not offering it as you know. The- but your your entry level stuff is going to be either Coterone, but but identifying Which it is from, like a village wine. But or- identifying it that the grapes come from the north because you could also get Coterone with grapes from the south. south. Eric Tessier makes some great wines that are Coterone level. T X T E X I E R. Correct. He makes some wines that are of. Uh, Coterone level that are ex- phenomenal, Saint Alban, things like that. Saint Julien, he makes um, Brésilien. There's some things like that, and then there's uh, also Saint Joseph, which is varying in qualities because it's a quite large region from north to south. But that's a pretty good entry level into drinking Syrah from the Northern Rhone. That's not going to take a top specifically Saint Joseph. Because obviously you get into Hermitage and all that. Those are all, you know. I mean, there's a lot of values in Crow's Hermitage as well. Right. But Crow's Hermitage and St. Joseph are such wide, uh, encompassing areas that you really need to be careful about what you're drinking and where it's coming from to get something of quality. So if you're not if you're not confident in the producer that you're buying... Do you have a good Crow's Hermitage guy you could throw out? I mean, I personally drink Gryo. Which- G-R-A-I-L-L-O-T. G-R-A-I-L-L-O-T. Is the producer. Alain Grio is the right. producer. And those wines probably are now $40 okay. retail, which you can find them less expensive right. in other markets or whatever. Not a I mean, there's other $24 like, Again, there's other producers in the region that I adore, but I think that's a really great starting point, even, even if it's a splurge bottle for you at 40 right. bucks to really get a good idea of what northern rhone syrah can be at its best at a lower price point. right that's the perfect quality to price ratio for i think that sweet spot yeah because cote de rhone in the north you could spend 18 20 22 24 maybe even less right yeah, I mean, like the bottle that we're about to drink is probably around the same price retail as the Alain Grio. Again, there's lots of different producers of Sancho Chef and Crows that fall into that area. I'm just, you know, just running into your store and saying, hey, I want to drink Sancho Chef. You might be highly disappointed or, hey, I want to drink Crows. You kind of have to do a little research. But the reason why I'd say Grio is because the wines are always whole cluster. And I think that that is a very important distinction in this region to find quality. Nice. Now, the region produces some incredible and historically well-known wines. Those are mostly uh, Hermitage and like the Lala's and all of that, right? Gigal in Cote Roti is... Cote Roti being a region. Help me. Cote Roti is the region in the far north of the Appalachian, but I think there's, there's a lot of great producers up there. Uh, that are far more evolved in the production of quality wine than the the great Gigal wines of, right. of yesterday. Right. Uh, Jean Michel Stefan um, is in the south of the Appalachian. S T E F A N. S T E P H A N. And okay. he's one of the few organic farmers. I love Clusel Roque. There's uh, C L U S E L R O C H. Uh, those uh, they're also an organic Good value farmer. wines. They're organic as well, which right. is very rare up there. After that, um, 
Benetier is a great producer, but those wines are almost impossible to find, but I chase them. If you see them, grab them. Uh, Jamais before the brothers split the second time. So again, going back to the late 90s, I think those wines are incredible, but they've they've changed a little bit. As you move further south, like Sancho Seff is a large, large region ranging from the north where you see somebody like Aurelien Chatignet who makes really perfumed wines that have a lot of volatile acidity in them all the way down to the southern part of uh, the Appalachian when you get into like Mauve and you get into Gonon and some right. of the real OG producers. Right, who's really hitting his stride. I, I mean, mean, I think... Tough to get his wines and they're expensive. They're now. impossible to get yeah. the wines and unfortunately... You want to talk about social media? Some of some some notable people in the industry have really uh, spent some time uh, making sure that those wines have tripled in price in a, in a two-year plan. Which I have to admit that I, I'm know, a little was, bit at fault, but not. I was mu- buying it four or five years ago at a reasonable price. It's ridiculous now. If you knew what they were four years ago I and you were drinking them at a reasonable price, you're winning the game. I, I know. Because the, I should have bought more. You asked about social media. The downside is is now those wines are four times as expensive and there's way less to be had. Yep. And if it were the before social media, that wine would have those wines would have had to circulate the old school way and it would have taken much longer for this to get to this point of price increase and in low quantities. Right. But I, you couldn't support a better human right. or humans with um it's all bro- for good. With the brothers and what they do there. Um, Jean Gonon's a dear friend and one of the greatest humans I've ever met. So I, I say if they're getting more money for the wines, then I feel good about it. All right. So let's pull out of the region for a minute. And because that's a, a personal love and passion of yours, but you have a whole wine program to run. Give me another region, producer, maker, or area that's exciting you right now. We also skipped Cornas, which I'm just going to say quickly is my favorite region of... Is Cornas 100% Syrah? 100% Syrah, and genetically it's been, it's highly been, like high, proven that it's highly likely that the original uh, birth of Syrah came from in or around Cornas. Give me favorite the, producer and another good one. The thing is, everything's expensive there. Right. Uh, the... The best value producer that I could say would be Alain Verse, which is Noel, which is uh, Noel's nephew. Right. Um, and the baller would be Alamond or Alamond and Clap. Clap. But the, the difference between these two, or the difference between all these other regions is Hermitage and Cote Roti are, are distemmed mostly or all by by stuff that we don't have time to talk about today. Cornas is almost always, and every great producer is always whole cluster, and the wines have the structure and, and masculinity that make them unique and beautiful. Can you just tell people in 30 seconds or less what whole cluster is, or I could help you? That's literally when the... Taking the grape off the stem and then fermenting the individual grapes with no stems versus taking the whole cluster with the stems. The stem. And when you crush with the stems, you're inherently going to get greenness and astringency from the non-grape content in right. the cluster. And again, and that's a conversation you have in Burgundy or many other places in the world. And it's a preference as a drinker. It's a preference as a drinker. I'm... Uh, You're a big whole cluster guy? When it comes to Syrah and the Northern Rhone, okay. if you have vines that Not have... Not in... Right. Northern Rhone, whole cluster. When you have like. the vines that have the age or the right... Uh, characteristics in the vineyard to be able to pull off whole cluster there's no reason why you shouldn't do it all the time got that and go ahead all right give me uh one other region that's exciting you right now 
Were there uh, at the restaurant? California. What in California? Honestly, I am not a big domestic drinker, but some of the stuff that my friends are doing out there, whether it's Jamie Motley, Scotty Schultz, uh, Michael Cruz, uh, Pax, of course, is the leader of that whole crew. I mean, those wines, you know, what Pax has done with the Sonoma Hillsides and taking something a grape that was forgotten in quality in California in Syrah and bringing it to the forefront and then having just pe- getting 100 points from Galoni and then having people under him like Scotty and Jamie coming along with you know Gamay and right. uh, uh, Mondus and things that are just and you know I'm not saying Pax didn't have a hand in those things I'm just saying that whole movement to me is exciting I drink Jamie's Mondus it's in my fridge you know, me and my girlfriend drink it on a regular basis. Uh, Scotty's wines are anytime we can get them. You can't get them in New York. So anytime we're in another market and they're available, we always crush Scotty's wines. Uh, I'll post those on our site. And, and those and are Michael Cruz is making some great sparkling wines and interesting. Grapes he makes like great. Val he makes great still wines as well. And yeah. at the end of the day, like those types of uh, people in California are really exciting me. I mean, there's lots of reasons that I'm always excited about, but they're nothing new or exciting. Maybe for, for, for the people that listen here, uh, you know, I love Loire. Chenin Blanc is a huge, you know, sir, if I could just drink Chenin from the Loire and Syrah from the Northern Rhone for the right, rest of my life, happy. I'd be very happy. I could, and I, I could exhaust myself in both of those regions. So that that's a good call. You know, California, but newer people and some interesting uh, varieties, varieties of grapes and, and the... Yep. The passion behind these young kids out there just looking to Very make quality too. juice and really put their heart and soul, which I talked about earlier. Like you taste the soul of these these young Your people. Your buddy Patrick Cappiello is in the process of and uh, I labeling a new wine. Cannot wait to taste right. what him and Pax have been working yep. on. But again, if you, if you follow him on on social media, you see the the soul that he's putting into. He's out there waking up early every morning. That's it. That's we were just life. out there crushing six a.m. call times to go pick up bins and really pour his passion into what he wants to do right uh, now and you're uh, going to be able to taste that in the bottle i'm looking forward to that all right i want to uh i want to subject you to our own wine list five questions let's buzz through them you don't have to dwell on them give me your best answers um you may have answered this the but clock it is starts now clock starts now first question what are you drinking now what's on your table what are you trying is it seasonal are you trying stuff for the restaurant what's now that's a great question. Uh, what's now is I'm, something's never changed. Like my fridge is full of rosé. Uh, I I'll drink rosé in the summer. I drink it in the winter. I was just going to ask. So rosé all the time. I drink rosé all the time. And like if you're looking for inexpensive wine, you're drinking great producers. I love drinking rosé. What else? Drink a lot of simple wines. From Give me one or two. Rouleau Bourgogne Blanc. Expensive producer, really high-quality Bourgogne Blanc at an affordable price if you can find it. Ali Gauté, uh, you know, from some of the great producers in Burgundy. Some people say Chardonnay is boring. Good for them. More for me if you're dealing with the right producer. Stéphane Tissot Chardonnays are the most underrated wines out there. If I could have my fridge full of them, I love reduction. I love salty wines. I love wines that are made with... So Tissot is a very oh, great and interesting recommendation. And his patchwork is inexpensive. And if I could just fill my Benedictine, fridge full of that... Trousseau, all that stuff. All of that stuff's good, but the the wine, the white wines are just where it's at. Uh, and then again, red. Love the Mondus from Jamie, which is in the fridge. Obviously love the Northern Rhone Syrah. Would, you know, something that's really under the radar, which not enough people drink, is... Is Leon Barrel Fougere and spell 
B A R R A L F A U G E R E S. Spelling spelling B. No, 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 Use it in people, a sentence. I drink a lot of Leon Barrel Fauchere. You know, come up to me. And go. What was he talking about? And you, of course, you can't even Google it. They if have not a on the right they track. have a base level wine by biodynamic producer from the south of France, and those wines are incredible. All right, you kill that question. Thank you. Matthew Conway's favorite wine and food pairing. You got something that sticks or not? Tecate and carnitas. Okay, and you have a pass with Mexican food. We may not have time to get into that. Um, give me Tecate's not a wine. Tecate's fine. Thank you. But you you've dabbled in Mexican foods. Um, Give me your favorite wine restaurant and our bar. And that's a question I ask everybody. And don't feel like you're excluding or pushing somebody. Who's doing it well? Who's got good people, good selection, slant towards wine, good place to hang? I love, place or two. I love a bunch of places for different reasons. I love anybody who focuses their restaurant on wine and love to, love to view it, uh, check it out. Uh, Arno and Pascaline at, at uh, Racine's is always a great place to go and drink, and it's Psalm close. Favorite. It's close to where I work, right. so I can hop over there. And they have such a deep list, and they're so knowledgeable. Uh, people forget about Terroir. I was just at Terroir the other night. Paul Greco. Paul's doing great things over Give there. Me one more. Caleb Ganser at Company. Like those are all downtown for a restaurant. Uh, no, no, no. Say though, because they all have food. You know, Paul Lebrand just left at Racine's. Wasn't a bad dinner and you know wine set up and all that i just feel short not giving a shout to pa- uh, pasquale jones where we go the most for food and ryan great hardy wine. food robert boar wine arvid all those arvid grant the whole team they treat to treat us like a million Agreed. bucks and the best, wine, everything's best restaurant wine that's the best that's the place that we spend the most time all right we got about five minutes to cover everything does Matthew Conway have a favorite all-time wine or two? And it doesn't have to be the most famous expense. Is there something that was experiential? Birth- Always wines that I share with good people. Uh, it has nothing to do. I mean, I could give you the list of great wines I've had. Who cares? Doesn't matter. For me, like... So that, that question, it's more about the people, the experience. My girlfriend, Carissa, is Puerto Rico, and we went to Puerto Rico for the first time and had an old bottle of Pierre-Yves Colin Moray Bourgogne Blanc that had been sitting down there for four years. Being with her, being there. We'd been drinking rum. We'd been drinking beer. We needed a cold, crisp something. She loves PYCM. We drank it together right there, and it's a bottle of wine I'll never forget. You taught her well. 60 bucks. All right, last question, and you should be able to capably answer this. Give me your best wine around 15 bucks, 15, 20 bucks retail. Give me a red, give me a white. Could be anywhere, anything. I always say this to the point where it's annoying and boring. My kids are in their mid-20s. They're making money. They're going to a dinner party. They don't want to bring crap wine, but they ain't spending 40. They're spending 15, 17, 18, 20. Red and a white. I'll give them to you, but the first thing I would say quickly is I would tell them if they're going to drink five bottles a week, Wednesday through Sunday at 15 bucks. Cut out Wednesday and Thursday, drink Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and spread that $30 out over those three bottles to go from 15 to 25 and you can drink Leon Barrel, you can drink Northern Ronsoral, you can drink Stefan Tissot, you can drink uh, some of the California producers I spoke about, you can drink all that stuff and just drink three bottles a week instead of five bottles a I'm week. I'm with you on that. And Nobody has ever made that suggestion, and it's a totally sound suggestion because it's the same money and better wines. And you're going to do a little bit better on your liver. All right. Um, but the $15 bottles, you want them? 
Give me one red, give me one white. Uh, Ezio Poggio Timo Rosso uh, Cespes from uh, Piedmont is a wine that Kim at Scampi turned me on to, which I just, I just absolutely adore the wine, adore the lady, adore everything about the situation. Uh, I crush that all day long. And for red, I just picked up a, a, a wine at the restaurant called Domaine Pelé from P-E-L-L-E with an accent mark. It's from Poliner, and it is... Menetou Salon Rouge, so it's Pinot Noir, and it's made with soul, like I spoke about earlier. Uh, nice. I'm going to post that. Couldn't drink enough of it. All right. If you can't, that means it's good. All right, we're going to wrap the show with our weekly wine sip. Every week we taste a different wine on air. I ask our guests if they want to bring a wine. Uh, Matthew was gracious enough to pull something out, and, of course, he brought a Northern Rhone. He brought in a 2016 Vincent Paris Le Cote. It's from the St. Joseph region of the Northern Rhone of France. Um, not easy to get. Retails from as low as 25 to about 40 bucks at better wine stores if you could find it. Quickly tell me a little more about this wine. Uh, Vincent Perry is the Paris is the nephew of Robert Michel, who is a legend in Cornas, and he makes mostly Cornas. And this is a young vine Saint Joseph vineyard in the center of the long north to south Appalachian. Uh, Le Cote is the hills; it's on the, on the side of the hill, and the the vines are, are fairly young. The the wine is destemmed, which is rare for me to love, but right. every vintage, um, my friends. Patrick Capiello and Ryan Mills Knapp and Risto Zizovsky, who was on a couple right. couple weeks ago, get together and we host a Northern Rhone Sancho Sef tasting of the new vintage blind with a bunch of esteemed wine palettes. And every year, uh, Pierre Gonon wins. Every year. This year, the top prize was Vincent Paris 16 Same. for all of the 16s. Um, and it really blew my mind that we... I'd never really had the, the Sancho Sef before. I was only familiar with the Cornas. So I wanted to share it today. It's The 16s are sold out, but I think the 17s are coming in. Is 17 a good uh, vintage year for... Uh, I don't have enough experience okay. uh, tasting 17s that. yet. I go every year. But the intel on you know climate, weather, all that? I'd wait till I judge it myself. Okay. I never believe what I read, but I, I go every year at least once, and I haven't been to taste the 17, so I'm let me get back to you on, on that. that. All right, let's evaluate this. So let's first give it a sniff, then we'll throw it over the tongue. Typically, the color is a beautiful uh, deep purple, right? Correct. And talk to me about the nose. I suck at this. I know what I smell. I can't describe it. You give me the descriptor. Classic Northern Rhone. Which is? Uh, destemmed wine. Floral, aromatic, violets. It's just brimming with uh, excessive uh, feminine, kind of like just beautiful. It's very expressive on the nose, but it has that earth, that bacon fat, the those the classic. olive, the rosemary, the things to the to not make it the too Northern lifted Rome. to whatever. So it's balanced on both sides with that hard minerality and the lift of the aromatics. And then when you get it on the palate, what's the mouth feel? Is it, it a medium plus? I'd is say it, it's medium, right? In this case, because it's distemmed, it's a little softer, and it's again, it's very pretty on the palate too. And again, it has that same lift but the same backbone. It's just beautifully balanced. All right, palate, does the nose convert to the palate? They're exactly the same, okay. which is just complete focus and balance in this Give one. Give me, we have about a minute. Give me what foods pair well with this. Lamb. 
Lamb, right out of the chute. No question. All right, we don't like this wine. We love this wine. Love. All right, so that's the 2016 Vincent Paris Lacote from uh, St. Joseph. All right, Matthew, we're going to wrap up. A couple of notes. Um, if you have a question, suggestion, wine happening, or event, hit me up at samatthegrapenation.com. That's samatthegrapenation.com. Follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation. Follow us on Instagram at SBenRuby and also the hashtag The Grape Nation. On Twitter, we're at BenRuby. You can subscribe to The Grape Nation podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. I will post all of Matthew's selections, our weekly wine sip, his wine list, wines that he mentioned on Instagram and on Facebook. So uh, if you missed anything, it'll be there. Uh, Matthew, if we want to find you on social media, where do we find you? At Conbeezy, C-O-N-B-E-A-Z-I-E. Can you just quickly tell me the... I was born, I was raised in the mid late nineties in in Northern California during the Snoop Dogg for shizzle my okay. nizzle right. con beezy because it's Conway there you go stuck with me forever still a diehard hip hop so that's fan. at con beezy all right one last thing Heritage Radio and the Grape Nation will be visiting Norwalk Connecticut during their Crush Week of Beer Wine and Spirits themed events on October sixteenth and twentieth the Grape Nation has been invited and will be doing an intimate wine dinner at the wine room at washington prime on 1019 go to norwalknow.org for more info thank you to our guest sommelier matthew conway at restaurant mark forgione in new york city thank you to our engineer gnome and everyone at the heritage radio network i'm sam ben ruby and you've been listening to the grape nation Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.